to Of Song and Bone, a podcast exploring ancestral arts and people's history through song, story, and poetry. I'm your host, Fern Maddie, and in each episode of the podcast, I'll be diving deep into one topic, perhaps an old ballad, a folkloric or mythic story, or an ancestral tradition. Through scholarly analysis and personal insight, I'll explore the meaning these songs, stories, and traditions may have held in times past what relevance they might have to folks living today in the modern world. My research is focused around Northwest Europe, the British Isles, Ireland, Scandinavia, and Central Europe, pre-Industrial Revolution. But my topics may occasionally stray beyond that scope, and if the podcast extends to include guests, I would love to widen the focus to include times and places beyond my area of expertise. If you want to learn more about the podcasts and about my other work in the world, you can find me online at ofsongandbone.wordpress.com or at fernmaddymusic.com. Now, without further ado, let's dive into our first episode, an exploration of riddle weavers, impossible tasks, and battles of wit in folklore and balladry. There stands three trumpeters on yon hell. Blow, 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 winds blow, and they blew their trumpets, salute and shrill, and the wind it blows my plaid Gennad his trumpet in my kist. Blow, 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 winds blow, and was in the lad's earms that I like best, and the wind it blows my plaid Gen ye would be wed with me. Blow, 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 winds blow, there's a thing ye mundy for me, and the wind it blows my plaid Ye man, mark me a linen sark. Blow, 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 winds blow, without a stitch of needlework, the wind it blows my plate. We start our story with an old folk ballad from Scotland and northern England called The Elfin Night. This ballad, first recorded in a broadside in 1673, tells the story of a young maid locked in a battle of wits with a somewhat menacing elfin knight. For those unfamiliar with the context of elves outside of the world of J.R.R. Tolkien, elf is a Germanic term for a specific kind of nature spirit, sometimes helpful, sometimes harmful, often taking a human shape and causing mischief for the people they cohabitate with. It is closely related to the Gaelic she, the Irish spirits whose name is often anglicized as the fairies. But these are not Santa's elves or fairies like Tinkerbell. These words describe a type of being that is older, more wild, and potentially dangerous to unwary humans. Now there are many possible interpretations for this ballad and for exactly what's going on in the story. I'll I'll give you my understanding of the narrative. 
I imagine that it's set on the cold, wild moors of northern England and the southern uplands of Scotland. In this dark and somewhat desolate setting, an elfin knight blows his horn on a far hill, catching the attention of a young maid. Captivated by the sound, the maid expresses her desire for the man and for his horn. One of the lines specifically states, If I had that horn in my kist, and were in the lad's arms that I love best, then the wind would blow my plaid away. This quote is my own slight anglicization of the original Scots language of the ballad, but the word kist remains, meaning chest. As a completely superfluous aside, this word kist demonstrates the influence of Old Norse on the Old English dialects of northwest England and southern Scotland. These dialects would later evolve into the Scots language. Words derived from Old Norse often retained a hard K sound, whereas English words developed a CH, a CH sound instead. So, kist versus chest. Okay, etymology nerding aside, let's get back to the story. This is obviously ripe with sexual innuendo, and in some versions of the ballad, the elf knight then directly propositions the young woman, saying he will become her lover or her husband, if she can accomplish a series of impossible tasks for him. I must have a fine linen sark, he says, without a stitch of needlework. Sark can be interpreted as a shift, a smock, or a linen tunic, a common form of daily dress throughout the medieval and early modern periods. He goes on to say to the maid that she must wash it in yon dry well, where water never sprang nor fell, and that she must dry it on yon white thorn that has not bloomed since man was born. The white thorn, of course, is a reference to the hawthorn tree, which is often associated with fairies and elves in British and Irish tradition. Now at this point in the song, the perspective switches, and the maid begins responding to the elf with her own series of impossible tasks. She says that her father has an acre of land, and that the elf must plow it all with his hand. He must sow it all with just one seed of corn and roll it in with a sheepshank bone. Then, says the maid, you must put it in the sea and bring the wheat sheaf dry to me. When you've done and finished your work, you can come to me and get your sark. And then the song ends, apparently in a deadlock, leaving the listener with a titillating set of questions. The young woman pivots to setting her own list of impossible tasks suggesting a quick change of heart, that she no longer wants the elf knight, but instead hopes to keep him at bay with her cleverness. Or perhaps it suggests that the relationship was never truly consensual, or that the desire she felt was a form of enchantment, a love spell cast by the elfin horn, from which she must now extricate herself using only her wit. It also begs the question of why the elf set his own list of impossible tasks to begin with. Did he wish to be lovers with the human woman, or simply to trap her in a kind of impossible love? I'll leave you to contemplate these questions for yourself, for I certainly have no clear and definite answers. But I have been captivated by this song since I first discovered it, and have been led down a winding road of exploration and discovery. There are many fun treasures to find along the way. If those lists of impossible tasks sounded vaguely familiar, it's because the Elfin Knight Ballad is very closely related to the much more well-known song Scarborough Fair. 
both versions, among others, were recorded and published by folklorist and ethnomusicologist Francis James Child in his five-volume English and Scottish Popular Ballads, which he released in the latter half of the 19th century. Child's work has become a sort of canon of folk song in the British Isles, but it was only a snapshot of the state of folk balladry in Britain at a particular time. It mixes songs that had been long passed through the oral tradition with newly written ballads published on broadsheets. The many versions of Scarborough Fair and the Elf Knight that Child recorded show various alternatives and amendments. In some, the traditional Scots refrain is echoed, Blow, 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 winds blow, and the wind will blow my plaid away, while others chorus the phrase, Where every rose grows merry and fine, and she will be a true love of mine. And of course, the very famous Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time. In many versions, such as Scarborough Fair, the supernatural element of the elf is not present, and the story is presented as a dialogue between two human lovers. In some versions, the tasks set are slightly different. My favorite variation asks the man to find an acre of land between the salt water and the sea strand, suggesting a sort of betwixt and between netherworld where the sea meets the beach. But in all of these variations, the basic outline remains the same. A story of a rather complex love affair told through riddles and impossible tasks. It is hard to say where or when the Elf Knight ballad originated, and much scholarship has been spent trying to trace the so-called child ballads to their pre-modern origins. Often this is a rather futile undertaking, but of all the ballads, the Elfin Knight begs out for deeper exploration and analysis. It is just one face of an old and many-faceted folkloric motif, one which reveals deeper insights about the relationship between humans and the other world, that sacred and unseen place which can bring both beauty and destruction. For instance, there are closely related folk stories from throughout Europe which follow the same format a clever lass performing impossible tasks or countering with her own to win herself a husband or to extricate herself from danger. Some of the related stories I'm about to share were outlined by Child in his original study, while some have been collected by me in my own research. One Germanic folktale tells of a challenge between a man and a woman to win the other's love. The man asks the woman to spin brown silk from oat and straw, but first she tells him that he must make clothes from linden leaf. So, he says, she must bring him shears from the middle of the Rhine. She'll do it, but only if he can build her a bridge from a single twig. A Transylvanian story offers its own set of creative challenges. In this story, it is a peasant lass in courtship with a king, a common motif in many of these related tales. The king requires the maid to make him a shirt and drawers from only two threads. So in return, the maid sends the king two broomsticks and says he must use them to make her a loom and a bobbin wheel. The king then sends a bottomless earthen pot and tells the maid to sew a bottom in so that no stitch or seam can be seen. The maid returns the fired clay pot, asking the king to turn it inside out because cobblers always sew on the inside. There are many more examples, too many to name here found with increasing derivation in Turkey, southern Siberia, Tibet, India, and beyond. In this way, we can see a greater tree of relationship, tracing a widespread pattern 
that suggests a very old origin to some of these stories. There is another set of stories which have a slightly different but still closely related theme. In these stories, the woman succeeds by answering riddles, or by actually fulfilling impossible tasks, rather than simply countering with her own. In the Old Norse saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, Ragnar courts his third wife, Kraka, actually Auslag Sigurd's daughter, by asking her to come to him neither dressed nor undressed, neither hungry nor sated, and neither alone nor in company. She fulfills his requests by coming dressed in a fishing net, eating a leek, and accompanied by a dog. This story is very similar to the folk tale The Peasant's Wise Daughter, collected by the Brothers Grimm in what we now call Germany. In the ballad, Riddles Wisely Expounded, the challenge turns to answering riddles, and it very clearly demonstrates the two ways that this story can often go. In one version, usually called Riddles Wisely Expounded, the youngest of three daughters cleverly comes up with the answer to her suitor's nine riddles, thereby winning herself a husband. In another almost identical version, called The Devil's Nine Questions, or 99 and 90, a smart young woman must wit-battle the devil himself by answering his riddles correctly, thereby saving herself from his grasp. There is much we can read into these stories, ranging from the relationship with the supernatural to the much more mundane aspects of day-to-day life. For all of our critical analysis, at the end of the day, we must remember that folk songs and tales were performed and received by regular people, and that the stories they held must have had some meaning and value that related to everyday life. For instance, in the case of Riddles Wisely Expounded, I wonder if there was any self-aware humor in the minds of the singers at the two wildly different yet almost identical versions of the song. Did young women listen to these songs being sung and wonder whether they would win themselves a worthy husband, or just a devil in disguise? It is notable, too, that such a widespread folk story so readily centers the cleverness of women, who in some cases extricate not only themselves but their loved ones from danger with their riddle-weaving. Did young women hearing these songs hope to hone their own wit, to meet the challenges of their lives? Of course, this demonstration of women's wit can also be viewed from a different angle. One has to wonder whether women who listen to these songs and stories ever sighed or raged at the prospect of having to prove themselves and their worth over and over again to the men in their lives. But of course, proving oneself through test and trial is a very old motif for characters of all genders. And so this story goes even deeper, because there is still yet another layer that we can peel back, revealing beneath it a bedrock of mythic memory. There are important distinctions between myth and folk tales. Myths and mythic legends are the big stories of a culture and a people. The stories which tell how the world began, how people were created, and how everything will end. These are the stories of named gods and goddesses, and their relationships with humans and with other powerful nature spirits. There are often legendary heroes, not gods but not fully human either, who play central roles in the stories. These named heroes generally have a personal story, a life narrative of where they come from and where they are going. Folk tales, on the other hand, 
are not generally big world-building stories. The stories may play with the supernatural, with witches, demons, elves, and other creatures that straddle the divide between the human world and the other world. But they are more focused on the experiences of regular people than of those of gods and heroes. The characters aren't always named, and if they are, the names aren't very important. There is little continuity in characters between stories, and the characters themselves live in a somewhat cardboard cutout world, like a theater reshuffling the same sets, props, and costumes in different combinations ad infinitum. There are also important historical and cultural elements at play in distinguishing myths from folktales, particularly in the European context. Many of the so-called native myths of European cultures that we look to today are pre-Christian relics. Although mostly written down by Christian scribes and scholars, they come from societies in which pagan folkloric elements sat comfortably within the overarching cultural stories. On the other hand, most of what we describe as European folk tales and fairy tales originated in the form we know them today within thoroughly Christianized societies. The pagan elements still remain, but they are in tension with the dominant Christian mythology that they are embedded within. But this is not to negate the importance of folk tales. Some scholars look at folk tales as degraded mythology, stories that retain elements of the mythic while losing their connection with the big story nature of mythology. But I'm not sure how useful it is to look at things this way. I think that folk tales and myths hold different but equally valuable functions in creating meaning in day-to-day life. In the mythic, we can see the folkloric, and in the folkloric, we can see the mythic. So keeping that complexity in mind, let's turn our exploration to riddling and wit battles in mythic stories. The folkloric stories of courtship through riddles that I described previously remind me of the Irish legend of Cahullan and his wooing of the woman Emer. The wooing of Emer is one of the many smaller stories and tales which make up the larger legendary arc of the superhuman hero Cahullan and his involvement with the Toyn Bakulnia, the cattle raid of Cooley. In this vignette, Cahulan seeks a worthy bride and finds his match in Emer, who is possessed of the six gifts of beauty, voice, sweet speech, needlework, wisdom, and chastity. Cahulan and Emer have a mutual attraction for each other, but Emer's father, Fargo Monarch, does not want them to marry. So they conduct their courtship through a series of riddle-like questions and answers, using double-speak to conceal their true meaning while testing each other's wit and knowledge. 
The series of questions and answers is, to be honest, rather esoteric, even to the dedicated student of Irish lore. I remain somewhat of a novice. But to give an overview, Emer first tests Cahullan with questions about his journey, to which he responds with riddle-like answers describing both mythic and physical elements of the Irish landscape. Emer and Cahullan then take turns in a more traditional boasting contest, each describing their talents and winning qualities. Emer's responses are in general more nuanced than Cahullan's. She speaks in thickly veiled metaphors that have evaded clear translation and interpretation by scholars, proving herself well-practiced in clever speech. Near the end of their encounter, Emer demonstrates foreknowledge of Cahullan's future and of their future together, expressing this knowledge through poetic metaphors that appear to go over Cahullan's head. Throughout the encounter, Emer is clearly testing Cahullan as much as he is testing her. But to go deeper into the riddling arts expressed in this story would take a whole other episode and require a much greater knowledge of Old and Middle Irish wordplay than I have. In case you were wondering, I have none. If you are interested in a deeper look at this story, I highly recommend the podcast Story Archaeology, hosted by Chris Thompson and Isolde Carnady. Their episode on the wooing of Emer helped me to prepare this summary. But whether we and Cahulin understand all the riddles or not, the result is the same. Cahulin leaves the meeting assured of the wit and worth of his desired bride, with the knowledge of her mutual regard and attraction. Cahulin must then go through a longer series of challenges and adventures before joining fully with Emer, but for now their bond is sealed. Cahulin is a fascinating and complex character. The child of the mortal woman, Diactina, and the god Lu, Cahulin is described as rather too beautiful for his own good. In fact, his wooing of Emer is predicated by the jealousy and suspicions of the other lords and warriors, who do not want their own wives pining after him. Upon his arrival to his meeting with Emer, he is described as a dark, sad man, but the fairest of the men in Erin. So we can sense that he is not simply a golden boy mythic hero. Far from it. His beauty and skill as a warrior edge close to the line of monstrosity, and sometimes cross it. Rather than five fingers and toes on each hand and foot, he has seven. Rather than one pupil, he has multiple swimming in each of his eyes. His battle frenzy sometimes crosses into a state described as reestrad, often translated as torque or warp spasm. In this state, his body shakes, turning inside out on itself. One eye is sucked deep within his skull, and the other falls from its socket and hangs along his face. The muscles of his neck bulge and swell, becoming immeasurably large. His mouth distorts, sucking his cheeks inside and turning his throat inside out, exposing his internal organs to view. In summary, as Joseph Dunn translates, then took place the first twisting fit and rage of the royal hero Cahulan, so that he made a terrible, many-shaped, wonderful, unheard thing of himself. Indeed. I've given time to this slight diversion, because I think it demonstrates the otherworldly, non-human nature of Cahulan, the quality which can be noble, fair, and benevolent, 
but which also moves with a primordial nature, unbound by the laws of human society and physicality. Of course, Emer herself also demonstrates otherworldly connections in the wooing story, evidenced in part by her poetic foreknowledge. I think this otherworldly connection is an important element of wit battle stories, and I'll circle back to this idea in a bit. So far, we've looked at songs and stories which generally pose women against men in the battle of wits. But the motif of the wit battle can be found in other mythic stories which don't relate to courtship or marriage. Many of these stories examine the element of deadlock that is found in the elfin knight and its relatives. The motif of two equals trying to outwit the other, but instead finding themselves almost perfectly matched. In the Norse Eric poem, Fafthruvnismal, the god Odin seeks out a meeting and a battle of wits with the giant Vafthruvnir, whose name can be translated as Riddleweaver or Mighty in Riddles. As his name suggests, Vafthruvnir is wise and possessed of much knowledge about the world, and so Odin, in disguise, challenges him to a contest to determine who knows more about the world and how it is made. The wager is set on the loser's head. Through their testing of each other, many details of Norse cosmology and of sacred geography are revealed. Both Odin and Vavthruthnir, in turn, answer questions about the origins of the earth and sky, the sun and the moon, the workings of day and night, and how the world will end in Ragnarok, among many other things. They seem perfectly matched in wisdom and omniscience, until Odin tests Vafthrudnir with a question the giant has no hope of answering. Odin asks what was it that he himself whispered into the ear of his son Baldur, before he was burned on the funeral pyre. In so doing, Odin reveals his identity to the giant, and the giant loses the wit battle, and presumably his head. In this example, we see another interesting interplay of relationality and otherness. In the Norse cosmology, the giants are ancestral spirits of the cosmos, personifying and channeling uncontrolled elements of nature and chaos. They loom larger than life across the Norse mythology, in power and presence more so than in form. On the other hand, the Asir, the branch of gods among whom Odin reigns as all-father, are particularly aligned with civilization and with other human pursuits, such as speech and poetry, warfare, agriculture, and magical arts. So in this sense, Vafthruthnir acts as the threshold of otherness through which Odin must face initiation, interfacing with that which is related to him, yet alien at the same time. Even the gods must turn to riddles at times, to face that which is bigger than themselves. So what ties these stories together? What do they tell us about the nature of riddles and the purpose of wit and clever speech in relating to the world around us? I see a thread running through these stories, one which is maybe trying to show us that riddles can function as a language of the otherworldly, as a medium of communication with those powers that surround us. Those powers may be great or small, strange or simple, alien or familiar. 
but in relation to them, the act of riddling can function as a fuel of initiation and transformation, allowing humans and gods alike to cross new thresholds. Even the folkloric stories of winning love and marriage can be viewed as experiences of initiation. In a highly hierarchical and rigidly class-based society, a peasant maid winning the love of a king is not simply a Disney-esque happily ever after. It represents a fundamental state change, a breaking and reworking of societal norms, the monumental crossing of a threshold into a new experience and identity. Of course, crossing any threshold, especially through a fundamental change of state and identity, can be a perilous course. Within the early stories, at the mythic level, and even in the elfin knight himself, we see this complexity. It is harder to type the characters as purely good or evil. Instead, they swim in ambiguity. Otherworldly entities reflect and mimic the nuanced human experience, serving as a recipient and a foil for human projections. In the later folklore, this has shifted. The more complex characters, such as the Irish monster hero Cahullin, or the riddle-weaving giant Fafthrithnir, or the elfin knight, have developed into a clear dichotomy of good and evil, the handsome shooter or the wicked shade, the good king or the devil himself. This reflects, perhaps, an increasingly Christian gloss on the earlier folkloric elements. But the thread remains if only we remember how to tug. There is much more that I could say about the nature of riddling in myth and folklore, and I had originally planned to discuss kennings as part of this episode. For those unfamiliar with the term, kennings are somewhat riddly little names and phrases, a kind of linguistic circumlocution associated with Old Norse, Old English, and Icelandic poetry. They are also found in Old Irish poetry, such as in the wooing of Emer story, and I suspect in many other oral traditions from around the world. They are great fun and fascinating to study and work out, and I think that they are related to the thesis that I put forward here, that riddling can serve as a language of connection and initiation with the more-than-human realm. However, this episode has gotten quite long, and I think I will save Kennings for another time. As you can probably tell, I've journeyed deep with the Elfin Knight Ballad. It has become a sort of foundational work of my scholarship into folklore and balladry, as well as an essential element of my musical repertoire. I even recorded a version of the song on my debut EP, North Branch River. The song is my own take on the ballad, a slightly modernized version, using a different tune than the old ballad singers used. I'm going to play some of it after wrapping up here. Stick around to listen to it if you wish. But for now, I think we can conclude our examination of the Elfin Knight and other wit battles in folklore. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Song and Bone. Yeah, I think I'm just going to drop the double of when trying to talk about this podcast. It's maybe a bit of a clunky name, but I like it anyway. I have several more episodes in different stages of development. To give you an idea of what to expect in the coming months, I'd love to title tease a few of the upcoming episodes. If all goes according to plan, future episodes should include, in no particular order, Spinning, Sound, and the Creation of Time in Norse Mythology, The Irish Keen and the Lament for Art O'Leary, 
Kennings in Skaldic Poetry, Groa Galder, Song Magic in the Norse Eddas, and The Maid on the Shore, Selkies, Mermaids, and Sirens in Folklore. I also hope to do an episode or more recording some of the discussions of my regular Norse Edda study group, as well as an episode exploring the complexities of ancestry and what that means to me as a student of folklore. I can't promise that all the episodes will be as long and in-depth as this one, or maybe they'll be longer, nor can I commit to a firm schedule. I do intend to release at least one episode a month for the foreseeable future to help get the podcast off the ground. I also hope to get my sound situation hammered down a little better. I've recorded this episode several times, and I'm still not super happy with the sound. Um, so thank you for putting up with my learning curve and with the sound of dogs panting and rustling in the background, because that's my life. Please let me know your thoughts on this episode, if you feel so inclined. Do you agree or disagree with my ideas about whip battles? What examples did I miss? Did I get anything wrong? You can contact me via ofsongandbone.wordpress.com or at fernmaddymusic.com. I'll also post an article on the WordPress site mentioning some of the sources I've used in creating this episode. You can also find me on Instagram at fernmaddy. That's Instagram at F-E-R-N-M-A-D-D-I-E. One word. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Sun or a warm breeze and the wind.
done just as I've said you can come and lay beside my bed and the wind will blow 